Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. Hey, Deb. What's the issue that causes us the greatest anguish on talkback gardening, do you reckon? Well, I think one of them, and it certainly costs me a lot of sleep, would have to be possums. Possums, yes. People want possums in their garden and uh, they try to bring them back. Others don't want possums in their garden. Is it possible for people and possums to cohabitate? Is there a word joyfully. joyfully, joyfully, yes. I think a lot, of, a lot of we do, we do already cohabitate. But can can we make it a more enjoyable experience? The person who is very bravely going to tackle that topic is James Smith from For Nature. Uh, that's that wonderful organisation of putting people and wildlife together, and uh, that's not the main discussion about uh, whether people and possums can live together, James has developed a wonderful new concept of habitat. And he's been responsible or largely responsible for many of the the boxes you see in trees for habitat for birds and uh, all kind of critters. But he's now developed a system uh, called hollows, tree hollows. And I think you'll be fascinated with it. And if, particularly if you've got a, a large tree in your garden or you live by parks and gardens and there are old trees, uh, don't chop them down. <laughs> They're needed. Wow. And James will explain more shortly. Uh, that we need a, top, a few other topics. Uh, if we've got time, I want to talk quickly about aphids. We may not have time for that one. But citrus gall wasp, I'd like to be able to fit that one in. Uh, the dates of when the wasps are going to emerge. And if we know that date, we know how uh, easy it is to control the wasps. Exactly. And I've got a couple of ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little bit later in the program as well. But if you've got a question that relates to wildlife in your garden, now is the time to call one three hundred triple two eight nine one if you'd like to speak to our zoologist James Smith about it. We'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to text in a comment, we'd love to receive those as well on zero four six seven nine double two. 891. James Smith, as I mentioned, runs that fascinating organisation known as For Nature, and it really is wonderful. The concept of James is to bring people and wildlife together, and he does it in many ways, but uh, one of those is providing habitat for wildlife. And uh, you would be familiar with the boxes that uh, are manufactured and put into trees, very, very useful. But uh, James has developed a, a better way of uh, looking after the critters by uh, providing them hollows, natural hollows is what they're all about. So let's say good morning to you, James Smith. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. Lovely to be here. And could we just start with the fact that it's been cold and miserable from our point of view? What about the wildlife? How are they sort of uh, gone with the, the weather? Oh, look, that's a great question. It's been really two-paced. There's things like insects. I'm seeing lots of mosquitoes, but lots of other insects that we'd usually have out by now are not there. So things are a little slow, but some of the seed eaters, like I was out and about um, last weekend and some of the parrots have already started nesting. I've got noisy miners nesting in my yard so there are a range of things happening but they're not necessarily in sync this year well let's take a look at that big issue possums and people can they cohabitate look i think absolutely there needs to be some tolerance and and sometimes there needs to be um some extra energy input which many of us don't like but it is certainly possible and and we perhaps need to think around the problem a little bit because there are different solutions depending on what the challenge is. Okay, so let's take a look at those three strategies I think I mentioned that you have uh, thought through. Well, you often talk about deterrent and there are a range of products that are available on the market that can help deter. They're either bitter or they smell bad, but they're often short acting. So um, people get frustrated that they need to put them on again and again. And if they keep them up, many of them do actually work, but it, it can be a time consuming process. So there are a couple of perhaps more natural or longer term ways that may also be useful to augment that. And I guess the, the next one is uh, 
many of us are after particular types of plants in our garden the greater diversity and therefore the greater variety of plants that are available the less the possums will impact particular plants mm. although they will still like our children like ourselves they still have favorites there are still ones that they are going to target okay and in those cases there are probably barriers we need to look at and there are two different types of barriers the probably the nicest most elegant looking ones are co-planting and it's so if if a possum is targeting parsley or some other sort of herbs we could mix in chives or onion type plants because the bitter the combination and we tend to do things in nice neat little rows but by intermixing things that possums don't like if they get a mouthful of something oh i want that but i don't want that and they can't separate it then they tend to avoid it so that's a really nice way to do it and another one we often hear about the roses and the rosebuds now um, possums are actually and in particular brush-tailed possums are really fastidious with their fur because that keeps them warm and healthy and they don't like getting oil on their fur so if we put in things like oily thymes or rosemary some low planted shrubs below our rose bushes or whatever else it is we're trying to stop them to get to they tend not to cross that barrier because it impacts them ah. Fascinating, and it's a matter of saying, right, let's think outside the square, and if you're going to uh, use a, a product, you've got to use it often, uh, you've got to be able to have the right plants uh, as alternatives, and uh, certainly the concept of uh, putting material, uh, like garlic, I think is the one that I've often sort of recommended, simply because, as you say, the possums are nice and clean, and they lick it, and they don't like it. No, <laughs> don't like the taste. So we just, we just need to be, I won't say smarter than the possum, but we certainly need to say uh, the possum has a place if we uh, think about it. Well, that's uh, interesting because I'm getting some possum-related texts. <laughs> I thought we um, might. And this might give some heart to Anne, who says, Possums have stripped nearly every leaf from our four-metre mandarin tree and are now eating the leaves on our very thorny four-metre lime. They eat everything in my veggie garden as well. We've netted... Uh, at put sleeves on trees, cut trees away from fences, put spikes on fences, all of which have little impact, I give up. Well, there you go. <laughs> you can try the increasing diversity and the co-planting, which is something I'll certainly be planting some rosemary around my roses. Mary from Cuddly Creek says, we have lots of grevillea growing. The possums love them and they mostly leave our fruit alone. Yeah, by putting in more native stuff that they like, um, they're used to being browsed by possums as compared to many of the introduced trees. So there's a real benefit there. The plants expect it. And Mick of Belair says, we, have, uh, we had a blind possum that cohabited our garden for 10 years and had five babies during that time. She would take food from our hand, would be out and about in the day. So not, not nocturnal there. Um, but the Kate says, it's not that we have wildlife in our backyards. It's the fact that we have invaded the homes of our wildlife. Look, absolutely. Um, possums used to be found over 75% of the state, and they're now only found over about 25% of the state. And people would find it hard to believe they're listed as rare in South Australia, brush-tailed possums. And I would now like you to tell the little story you told me yesterday, simply because uh, people, we take possums for granted. We don't want them because there's too many of them. But maybe that's wrong thinking. Tell us, well, James. Um, when, we first, when I first met John, um, it was more than 10 years ago now, um, I got, it was at the Adelaide show and, and someone came up and spoke to me after the show concerned about four possums that had invaded his garden, four brush tails. And they, I said, okay, they haven't always been there. Um, how long have they been there? And he said, oh, about 18 months. And, and I said, what had changed in that time, in, in about 18 months ago, that you got an invasion of possums? Because typically you would really only get one or two possums that would use your yard. And I said, there's been some bushland removed or some major activity. And he said, the Northern Expressway, they've just cleared a whole lot of bushland. And I said, okay, that's number one. Number two is you live in um, a block or an area where you are a green oasis. There is virtually no one else that is managing um, their garden in the way you do. So you're the only one providing food. So they have been attracted to your place. And he goes, how do you know that? And I said, that's just the behavior of the animals. And I said, the saddest thing is because um, where the possums have come from, there is no other 
repository, I guess, of possums to spread from, you will have these animals somewhere between 8 and 12 years, and unless they reproduce, and that'll happen once, you'll never see another possum again because you have lost the habitat that they can actually find you from. And he went from hating these animals to going, well, I actually need to appreciate this for while I have them. Yes, they have an impact. And indeed, much of Adelaide is being carved up and we're losing connectivity. And without the connectivity, we then lose many of the animals. Yeah, like the you're, you're saying that as we change the suburbs and we get rid of the trees that they lived in, and we replace it with things that uh, maybe they can eat out of desperation. But uh, if we leave it long enough and do nothing, we're going to lose possums. Absolutely. Really, in the long term, unless we consider what we're doing in our backyards, um, it's only going to be corridors like the Linear Park or, or other creek lines across Adelaide where there is actually connectivity or large parks that we're going to retain possums. All wildlife need habitat to survive, and you've been very important in South Australia, I think, in, in, in providing uh, and, and encouraging people to put in habitat boxes. But uh, you're coming up with a different kind of concept of hollows. But before we look at the hollows, just how severe is the shortage, the, the housing shortage. We've got a housing shortage for people, but there's a housing shortage for habitat, for, for, for wildlife. Look, absolutely. Historically, on somewhere like the Adelaide Plains, more so up in the Adelaide Hills, we probably had between about 10 and 15 hollow-bearing trees per hectare. And those trees might have had one hollow up to more than 15 hollows per tree, depending on how old the tree was. I'd suggest people go out their backyard and have a look and see how many trees that are there and how many of them have hollows now. Very few. Okay, so it takes, I think you told me yesterday or during the week, a, a hundred years sometimes for a eucalypt to grow sufficiently to, before it gets hollows. 90% of our hollows outside of mangroves and rainforest occur in eucalypts. It takes a minimum of about a hundred years for a hollow to develop for a small animal like a, a pardalote or a bat, 120 to 150 years for a small parrot, 200 years for a possum, for something like a yellow-tailed black cockatoo, we're talking probably 300 years for them to develop naturally. Last week we had massive wind and it blew a lot of trees over and a lot of people uh, are probably getting angry because we're sort of saying you need to look after the trees. Um, should we be more concerned about the trees and as they die, uh, preserve them? Oh, look, the diversity that an old mature tree provides in the form of seed, in the form of the habitat that it actually creates is enormous as a single individual. And we really need to retain these in the landscape. That doesn't need mean that we need to leave them as they are. Some of these trees need quite a bit of work to make them safe. And, and councils and arborists are really good at recognising doing this often. So don't chop it down. Just uh, make sure it's safe to the public and uh, to people. And uh, we'll talk uh, shortly about hollows. Our guest is, this morning is James Smith from For Nature. And uh, we're about to talk about uh, a new concept of habitat. But uh, We are. And if you've got a question for him, jump in on 1300 222 891. Just before we leave possums, just a few last texts on that. Um, Barb says, my land's going to be cleared for South Road in 2024. So exactly what you're talking about. Di says, the huge development at Glenside Hospital cut 84 significant regulated trees, hence possums moved into Eastwood and surrounding suburbs. So what you're saying is being felt definitely. Um, this person asks a question, do you recommend leaving suitable food out for possums so they don't invade other plants? And in fact, last week we had a caller that said he left wheat out for possums. Okay, that's a very vexed question, and and uh, on a short-term basis perhaps, um, but really limited. I have been called out to help people where they have an overabundance of possums, which is not good, and it's because of the feeding as well. By having natural plants that replace them is actually much better 
than artificially feeding possums. Okay. Um, Meredith says, uh, I have many trees, including an ancient walnut in my St Peter's garden. Over the last five years, possums have created terrible damage. Glory vine over north-facing pergola nearly killed ditto climbing rose. I've started feeding a little at night and has taken some pressure off. They don't eat natives, couriers, etc. They... Uh, I've had to give up on veggies other than small netted upright garden. Been here 30 years. Devastating. So we come back to those three tactics, don't we? We do. Deter, increase diversity and co-plant using those plants that possums don't like. Rosemary is in my head. I'm going to be putting that (laughs) under my roses. Um, This person says, no wisteria bloom for me this year. Every single flower bud has been eaten by possums. I find it hard to love thy enemy. (laughs) And Barb at Glandor says, The bees took over my lovely possum box, but my possum still takes the banana I leave out. Uh, Desert Henley Beach has a question for you. Um, James Smith, zoologist, is our special guest in the studio. Des, good morning. Yes, um, this thing about tree hollows for the various creatures. Now, with uh, modern uh, woodworking equipment, it wouldn't be any real problem to to make a big tree hollow anywhere you like, in any tree. Um, We will cover some of that, and it's actually a real skill, Des. Um, These are some of the most highly qualified arborists that are able to do what we're about to talk about, and I certainly wouldn't recommend anyone take it on themselves and there isn't there in fact um, a new product called a hollow hog has only just been developed um, using the most advanced technologies to try and accelerate some of this process but it really is very cutting edge stuff Des. So bounce off that one and and say uh, there's a tree and it's got a thin layer of bark and we're talking of eucalypt, and it's got you know, a couple of centimetres of bark, and then it's got sort of its uh, xylems and phloems, you know, where the sap goes up and down. So we're talking about sort of something that's only a couple of centimetres uh, across, uh, and maybe we're looking at a, a tree that's uh, uh, probably a metre, maybe even two metres across, and inside it's all dead wood. So why can't you just bore a hole as uh, suggested, and and make a hollow. Okay, I mean, that's a great question. Now, how natural hollows are formed, and they're the best sort of hollows, is by termites and by fungus. So none of our 350-odd vertebrate species that rely on hollows can create these hollows in the first place. And that's why it takes so long for these hollows to occur. Um, The where the tree is and the stress that the tree has been exposed to depends on how quickly those hollows form. So just boring a hole in a tree will accelerate the process, but it won't make that hollow ready to use tomorrow. And, of course, it will upset the stresses, the natural stresses and strains that a tree has to be able to uh, buffet itself uh, or uh, survive against the buffeting of of the wind. So if you destroy something down below, it affects something upstairs. Absolutely. A big canopy, and if the hollow is put in the wrong place, um, you get the wind from a wrong direction, what we saw earlier in the week, and what we are concerned about, the safety of the trees and therefore the safety of assets or people, is incredibly important. So much better to use, um, uh, put these hollows in in trees that are incredibly well managed or ideally in dead trees where there isn't the risk of what you're just talking about. Maria at Seaview Downs on the text line says, I think that it's a scorched earth policy that happens every time an old house gets raised that makes the possums invade backyards. They have to find new homes. And it is very sad. I've seen some houses on my street with really well-established orchards, so many trees in the backyard, and when they develop, that not a tree is left standing. Yeah. I, I don't understand why that that policy happens. Um, Linda at Sandy Creek says, I grow many natives in my garden that I know possums eat. So once again, creating that food source. Um, And what else have we got here on possums before we leave it? Um, Forgive me. Possums are certainly not rare on KI. They're everywhere. The only way to grow fruit and veggies here is complete exclusion, strong chicken wire enclosures and to retain native bush for them to eat. We had a Rosella for nature box given to us some time ago. Finally got around to putting it up. Three days later, 
a pair of rosellas started checking it out and are now nesting. They're such beautiful birds to have close by. And and there are only three locations where brush-tailed possums are still considered common and the most common place is KI. And again, it's because how we've changed the landscape. Our special guest in the studio is zoologist James Smith. We're going to hear more about hollows in just a moment. If you'd like to speak to him, you'll have to be quick. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. This morning's guest is zoologist James Smith from For Nature. James, you can hear the anguish in some people's voices because they are being invaded by possums and it's very, very hard to see the big picture and for us to actually imagine that probably possums could be just disappear because of our ignorance in terms of our our planning. But let's come back to your concept. You addressed the Tree Net Symposium a couple of weeks ago uh, and put forward this concept of hollows uh, or habitat hollows. What are we talking about uh, in in that situation? I mean, there are natural hollows that appear in a tree, but uh, you're saying we can speed up the concept. We can. I was approached quite a number of years ago by uh, a family of arborists, wonderful arborists from Victoria, who said, is there any way we can put hollows or accelerate this process? Do we have to wait 100 and 150 years? And these guys are amongst the most um, experienced chainsaw carvers in Australia. And I said, well, we can do, but it it needs to be in a a safe location. So over the last um, 10 years or so, we've played around and developed a concept whereby particularly in dead trees, um, dead standing stags or dead limbs in live trees that are large enough. And we're talking about um, a girth that is at least 40 centimetres wide or bigger. Um, What the arborists are able to do is cut off what we call a faceplate. So typically a thick bit of timber that's about 50 centimetres in diameter and then carve a cavity within that dead wood that is the appropriate size for the animal they're trying to target. They will put an entrance, again, another hole in the other side of the limb and attach that um, faceplate back on. So if someone is walking past, they wouldn't even know other than the hole that the hollow is there. Is that 50 centimetres or 50 millimetres? Sorry, well done, Deb. 50 millimetres, <laughs> right, okay. not 50 centimetres. Thank you. <laughs> just, just, I was just thinking, wow, that's, that's really deep. Yeah, yeah. 50 millimetres, absolutely. And it depends. We've done them as small as something for a pardalote, and they have even done some for powerful owls, and these are birds that need um, uh, a 50-centimetre square base as far as their hollow is concerned, and they stand about 800 um, millimetres, 80 centimetres tall, so they're big hollows for powerful owls. And we're talking about habitat hollows going into dead wood, not necessarily, or not not at all, uh, live wood. Well, we, we almost exclusively put it in dead wood in urban or peri-urban environments. The reason being, as we talked about earlier, if we compromise a trunk um, that has a canopy above it, then... Uh, in big winds like we saw on Wednesday, um, the tree may fail. And that's the last thing we want to do. So safety is one of the paramount options. So there are many large gardens still in Adelaide, particularly in the hills, and they would have probably a big eucalypt or a nice big uh, tree there. And it's ailing. It's starting to fail Um, And people say, well, look, it's getting dangerous. It's going to drop its limbs on the tree or on the kids. Um, How do you come to grips with that concept? Okay, And, and absolutely very true. Arborists are dealing with this day in and day out. And what they do is scaffold the tree. So they reduce it to major limbs that are not a risk, that are not going to fall. So they take away any of that element of risk and then... Um, The most expensive part of the tree to remove is actually those large limbs and the trunk. So by leaving that large, uh, those large limbs and trunk in place and introducing habitat into it, it increases the biodiversity, it helps the local wildlife and also just having tall timber in the landscape 
makes it a staging post for things like uh, magpies or other birds coming through. And by planting around it, you can increase the diversity, which we come back to again, which is incredibly important for our wildlife. So you've got something you want to get rid of and you turn it into a feature, a habitat for not just birds, but all kind of critters. Absolutely. And you save money in the process. We've got quite a few calls for you, James, so we better jump to them. We'll try and get through as many as we can. Sue is in Torrensville. And Sue, good morning. Good morning. Um, I had two uh, beautiful birds who were nesting in a corrugated iron wall of a factory across the road and the people over there blocked it off. And the birds came back for a couple of years and sat there and cried and then broke my heart and then eventually left. So I put, bought a bird box from the, um, you know, up at the, in the hills and I put it up in the tree and they haven't come back to that. Will they eventually come back and find that bird box that I've put up? Um, the, often pairs of birds, and in the case you're talking about, it was most likely a rosella and probably an Adelaide rosella because they're the ones that typically um, nest in that way. Uh, they might have only, when they realised that they couldn't go there, they move right across the landscape. These birds are moving tens of kilometres in a day. So they might have found somewhere else and are really happy where they are. But what, what it highlights is the lack of opportunity for them and what you're doing may not attract that pair back, but it will attract something else. Yes, so you may get another bird in your garden, Sue. Thank you very much. Kim's in Old Ranella. Kim, you're coming back to the issue of possums. Yes, yes. Um, look, um, I have a neighbour that um, keeps on um, throwing his... Um, scraps onto the lawn and um, um, saying, I want to feed the birds, I want to feed the birds. Well, um, I reckon he's only feeding the rats, actually. And um, I'm wondering if possums and rats are natural predators of each other and whether possums win. Um, okay, possums... 70 brush-tailed possums in particular, um, ring-tailed possums are 95% leaf eaters. Brush-tailed possums are about 70% leaf eater. They will take insects. Um, over on Kangaroo Island, they will occasionally take fledglings, but that's, again, because we've changed the environment. That's really rare. They are not predators. They tend to eat fruit, um, leaves mainly, but fruit, flowers, um, and insects so they will scavenge if food is thrown out and I would much prefer someone to either compost them or throw them in the green bin than throw them on the backyard that doesn't really help thanks Kim and a last caller I think for James because we really are out of time is Jill in Blackwood hi Jill hello now I have a question for James we have a very successfully used rosella nesting box that we've put up at the moment we have identified two pairs that seem to come at different times of the day and I'm sure both the females are laying eggs in the box and off they go and unbeknown to anyone else, the next one comes in. How far apart can we put another nesting box for them? Okay. Rosellas are a funny bird. They're really social except when they're breeding um, and usually... Uh, they need to be at least about 20 metres apart or have no line of sight. So they might only be 10 metres apart if one tree is on one side of the house and another tree is on the other. But typically for rosellas, other birds are more um, accommodating, but not rosellas when they're breeding. They get really upset. Thank you very much, Jill. James Smith, we need to wrap it up fairly quickly. Um, okay, we can make use of old trees uh, in our gardens and parks and, uh, and gardens and things like that. Um, do, does it have to be eucalypts or can you use uh, an elm tree or an oak tree or, uh, or other kinds of species? Look, that's a great question. Uh, typically, it is eucalypts. It needs to be hardwood. If it's softwood or softer wood, it decays too quickly. So it's just not worth the effort. Um, and, and what we're looking for is longevity in the landscape and that people get their money's worth for what they're doing. And if we take a look at what you've been saying, you're indicating that there are a large number of trees, not necessarily dead, but dying or even live trees that are old, that are potential habitat 
for wildlife and rather than sort of chop them down and lop them uh, there is an alternative and that's getting somebody like an arborist in to turn it into habitat hollows uh, habitat hollows just i mean global warming retaining trees wherever we can these trees genetically are really valuable and in addition we're adding diversity because they make wildlife able to use them so there are many reasons to retain them but making them safe is important and we need um, arborists, in particular skilled arborists, to be able to help us do that. People are angry because they've got possums and the problem is theirs and they perhaps don't see the fact that it's us that's created the problem. We've changed the habitat for them and if there is no habitat, what's the consequence? There are no animals. There are very few places in the world that have a three to four kilo animal that are able to put up with us as neighbours and we're pretty disgusting neighbours and possums is one of those and for most people they get on really well they try and avoid you because you're a threat to them but they're wonderful to have around as is most of the wildlife and by accommodating a few things like the three strategies we talked about hopefully we can live in more harmony with possums and the other wildlife. You have a wonderful website which provides information to people who want to preserve wildlife yes we do we need to spell it because i'm getting so many text messages (laughs) saying looking for for nature including steve it's not f-o-r-e at all it's not f-o-r or f-o-r-e it is fauna f-a-u-n-a with tour t-u-r-e so think of it as fauna so the for nature is f-a-u Nature. For nature. Yes, it is. Sorry for the confusion. That's all right. I'm getting so many text messages. And look, thank you to everybody who sent them through. There are so many. I can't possibly read them all out. But Louise at Golden Grove does say, where can we get hollow substitute replacements, please? I I live in a villa. I'm not a handy person. Um, Certainly from nest boxes, they are available at at good gardening centres. Um, we supply them and, and sell them to people as well. If there are trees, um, there are really qualified arborists, but you need to make sure you find someone that knows what they're doing. And James presented his concepts to the TreeNet. TreeNet is the Association of Arborists. And a lot of arborists, uh, you ring them up and they'll chop down your tree and they may not be aware of what James is talking about. But if we don't start talking about it, people are not aware of it. And this is, um, I thank you very much, James, for giving us the awareness of what is possible. And maybe we have to stop blaming the possum or the problem and think about why is it so? And maybe... It's our problem. Be part of the solution, as they say. Absolutely. James Smith, love your passion. Thank you so much. It's lovely to have you back in the studio again. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Brilliant. James Smith, zoologist with For Nature, F-A-U-N-A-T-U-R-E. Have a look online. We're getting back into general talk about gardening calls in just a moment. 1300 is the number. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Robert at Enfield is calling in about curly leaf on a nectarin tree. Hi, Robert. Good morning, uh, John and Deb. Yeah, I've got a nectarin tree. Um, I believe it's curly leaf. The leaves are distorted and all sort of bubbly and I've been taking them off. Is that the correct thing to do? Well, I need to ask you, uh, where is the bubbling and the distortion? Is it on the tips or is it all over the tree? All over the tree, okay. over the leaf. Right, the reason I ask that, I'll come back to that because there's a problem with uh, peach uh, aphids. But if you've got curly leaf all over the tree, uh, then the leaves are going uh, curly all over the tree, it's too late to do anything. Um, it's curl leaf, it's a fungus, and it gets in just before or just as the buds are bra- bursting open in springtime, and you need to put on a fungicide before the buds open. Nothing you can do to stop the fungus now. The leaves will drop, and probably the most important thing you can do is put some fertilizer, wash fertilizer into the plant's root system. A good balanced uh, fertilizer would be ideal and uh, just help the tree to grow more leaves. And I think uh, that's about the only thing you can do there, Robert. Right. Now, uh, just what you were saying earlier or started to, there is on the plant a 
black shiny insect, about a millimetre, a little bit less in size. Yep. Okay, and so many people are looking at their peach or nectarine tree and there's distortion there. There are bubbles or there are uh, just, uh, just, as I say, distortions. And it's mainly at the tip end of the branches. And it's not the fungus, it's not curly leaf, it's peach, uh, le- peach leaf uh, aphids. And there are back bl- green ones and black ones. And they get into the tips, start sucking the sap, and they cause that puckering that you can see. Peach aphids are very difficult to control because they're resistant to most chemicals. And so the, if you've got that particular problem, to me, the solution is using Confidor. Confidor is systemic, and so when you spray a normal spray on it, it can't get to the aphids because of the puckering. They hide in there. But if you use... Uh, Confidor, and okay, you're going to say, oh, what about the bees? But the tree has already flowered. It's finished flowering for the season, not going to produce any more. Use Confidor, get in there, and it's one of the chemical, one of the few chemicals that I'm aware of that will actually control peach aphids. And they can be very, very destructive, and they'll stay there for a very long time uh, un- unless you'll find that uh, there are predators out there. So take a good look and see whether there's other little things like ladybirds and, and before long there'll be hoverflies that will sort of eat them up but uh, right now there's not many predators out there and they are causing a lot of distortion and it's not curl leaf uh, the fungus it's curl leaf caused by the aphid okay robert thank you very much thanks for calling in appreciate that butch from point turton welcome butch morning deb uh, I'm in Sinkley Park today, however, with a problem with, well, a question for a rather large fig tree. It's, uh, the, the tree's well over two metres at the main trunk before it spreads into four big boughs. But I, in the past, I've been told to prune it back about a third. But I've heard recently, I think it was John talking about, you shouldn't prune them until they're in leaf. But I want to know what stage of the summertime or springtime i can start pruning it back a little bit and you're talking about uh, did you say a fig tree fig tree yep yeah and so it's it's got about a 10 meter spread and it'll be about 10 meters high yes well you need to know what you do in terms of uh, pruning Uh, people that come in and lop and if you just cut a branch and cut it in half you'll get lots of new growth that what i call witch's broom and they are very weak and uh, if they start to grow uh, and elongate and you think oh it's a new branch uh, it gets blown off in the wind it's the wrong way to prune or to uh, to uh, tr- uh, retrain a tree you need to be aware that you need to sort of leave the the, the limb and have the uh, uh, the uh, tip growth still there it, it's a job for an arborist and I suggest that um, other than me try and uh, sort of explain that on on radio and get an arborist to explain why you need somebody that understands how to prune a tree properly rather than lop it lopping is one of the major reasons why we have problems with trees in gardens <laughs> okay, so uh, do I get a specialist fruit tree arborist or any arborist? Uh, I think <coughs> you, if you ring an arborist, uh, uh, you'll find that uh, they are, uh, to, be a, to be a qualified, uh, just ask them, are they a qualified arborist? And if they are qualified, they've got to go through certain training. And uh, uh, in terms of your timing, now would be a very good time to do it. Excellent. Good luck with that, Butch. James is in Panorama. What's eating your avocado tree, James? Uh, yes, I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what pest is uh, eating it. It's a small tree. It's probably only about four foot high. It's been stripped uh, once, and now I've got one branch um, that's grown back. Uh, whatever pest ate it also killed a, a guava tree, but the other, uh, we've got a lemon and a, some other fruit trees that don't... Are they eating the leaves and the tips, or are they eating the bark? Uh, just, just the green stuff. Right, uh, uh, do you have uh, what? What kind of trees have you got round you? Or, uh, I'll ask it another way. Do you have yeah. possums? Uh, I haven't seen any possums, oh. but it is. I'm not sure that this tree would support the weight of a 
possum. It's it's uh, like I say, it's only three or four feet high. Yes, if it's uh, uh, well, if it's in the top half of the tree, it's more likely to be possums. If it's the bottom half, it's more likely to be rats. Uh, rats uh, can be very very damaging, and there's a large not number of them out there this winter and early spring, and they eat uh, uh, the tipped growth, but they'll also eat the bark as well. And uh, if it's not one of the, either of those two, um, sometimes birds can be very, very damaging. Uh, you need to be observant and, and try and find out uh, during the day, is it sort of the disappearing during the day? If it is, it's a bird. And if it's uh, happening at night time, it's more likely to be a possum and a rat. Uh, but at, actually, without actually seeing what they're eating and how they're eating in, in, in little small... You, you, you can think of the, the teeth, you know, rats have got sort of little chisel teeth, possums have got broader mouths, and so <laughs> their bite is different. So a, a qualified person or an experienced person can look at that and sort of say, oh, I think it's this, but I don't know that I can do that on radio. Okay. Assuming it's a rat, is, is there some sort of something I can put around the base of the avocado or...? Um, to stop them climbing well up. there are uh, bait stations have you got uh, dogs or, or you need no, to be no don't don't don't, don't no, no, well, even if the neighbors have got uh, uh, rats will come in from two or three blocks away uh, into your garden but there are now what i call uh, good bait stations um, and uh, they're put out by yates they're brilliant uh, they're like a little lunchbox made out of very, very strong uh, um, PVC-type material and with little holes where the rats can get in, and you can either put in uh, uh, the baits, very effective baits, which will kill rats. It's attractive. To, the rats are attracted to it, and they'll eat it and go away and die. Um, and the problem is if a, a dog gets it and eats the, the, the rat that's died, they can sort of get secondary mm -hmm. poisoning. It, it, it's not an easy solution to that one. But uh, uh, go on the web and see what you can find there. Um, I can just make you aware that there are bait stations, there are baits, uh, but there are problems that you, you need to be aware of. Yeah, okay, James, good luck with that. Thank you very much. Steve's in Port Adelaide with a question on tomatoes. Hi, Steve. Yes, good morning, uh, Deb and John. John, um, I've got some tomatoes that I've self-sowed from a compost. I'm just wondering if they'd be good for planting. Absolutely brilliant. And it's very essential that you try and not destroy its root system. Because they've germinated in a compost, uh, the material will be nice and soft, and you'll be surprised at how extensive, particularly how deep the root system has gone. Uh, so uh, be gentle, um, soak it. T today and, and, and shift it tomorrow um, and then when you have moved them uh, uh, put them are you going to put them in the ground or in containers uh, they're already in the ground because I've actually spread the compost out um, a while ago and they've just come up but I did want to shift them into a new location yeah okay well if you take the root system and, and, and try and keep the root uh, ball together or the, or the roots together um, the important thing is uh, make sure the ground or where you're going to put them is, is ready to go and when you do put them in there uh, the ground needs to be sort of fairly loose uh, and yeah. just water it in with one of the seaweed uh, solutions and I think that will help get it off. The most important thing is uh, probably for the first week if we get some sunny weather, if if only, uh, we got some sunny weather, you need to protect it from sun during that first week and also protect it from wind. I'd be getting some little cordial bottles, take the top off and the bottom off, and plonk that over the seedlings, each seedling, and uh, for, yeah. uh, leave them there for a week or so uh, until the plants are well and truly re-established. Mm. Is that something that I can do uh, this weekend or wait for next weekend? When no, no, no do, it this week, do it this weekend. If you've got little bottles over them, if it gets wet, it doesn't really matter. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Steve, for the call. Appreciate it. We will be talking to Sue Ann next about citrus, and I think citrus gall wasp is going to be something you want to talk about, John. But right now, I have two ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away. If you haven't won anything from the ABC here in the last month, call in now on 1300 222 891. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. South Australia and Broken Hill. We are indeed. Sue Ann is in Border Town. Now you've got a citrus question, Sue Ann. Yes, good morning. I have a uh, lots of lemons 
dwarf lemon tree in a pot and I would just like to put it to a bigger pot wondering when is the best time of the year to do that. Are you in sun or is it in some shade? Um, wherever I want to put it, at, well at the minute it's half and half. I want to put it in the sun, don't I? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I, think, I suppose where my question is, uh, will it be in full sun or will it be in shade? It will be full morning sun, full afternoon shade. <laughs> right. Is All that right. is that any good? <laughs> yeah, okay, that being the case. If it's in full sun, the ground is warmer and uh, you it'll be a few degrees warmer and uh, so you could move it right now, uh, providing you protect it from wind. Um, and uh, because it's a bit of both, I'd suggest wait until the end of October. Soils will be just a little bit warmer if we do, when you move it, and if we do run into some uh, nice warm weather, uh, just protecting it uh, for the first two weeks, put some shade over it, would make a very significant difference. And down Border Town Way, you might also consider whether you need to protect it from wind. Okay. It's going into another pot, a bigger pot. Oh, okay. Well, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that this, this weekend. Um, okay. Or, oh, good. Or if it was mine, I'd probably wait until the end of October anyway and do it then. All right. Uh, water in with a seaweed product, and uh, again the same things. Make sure you don't have sun shining on it uh, on a warm day, uh, and uh, protect it from wind. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Sue Ann. Good luck with that. And while we're on citrus, John, citrus gall wasp, timing is all. Absolutely. And citrus gall wasp only have one generation for the year. And they will emerge, and it's now official. The emergence is dependent on the temperatures in springtime. And uh, the citrus industry uh, uh, gall wasp program uh, make this information available. And uh, uh, Greg Baker from Saudi looks at those figures and then uh, uh, actually uh, works out for Adelaide when the wasp will emerge. And at this stage, and as we get more, if we get warm weather or cold weather, it'll change. But at this stage, they're going to start emerging on the 30th of October. 30th of October, they'll start emerging, and the peak of them will be about the 15th of October of November. 15th of November, and uh, the, those dates are important because there are two sprays. You can either use a kaolin spray or an oil spray, and the concept is to stop the wasps from laying eggs. And if you put a material over the, your trees, the wasp comes along and it won't lay its eggs through kale and clay and it doesn't particularly like a, an oily situation. So that's why it's important to know when they are emerging. And it just means that the week before the 30th is the time to put on your kale and spray or your first oil spray. And with kale and spray, um, you'll find that you'll need two sprays. Put the first one on just before they emerge and the second one just before the peak. So those dates is one just before the 30th and put on another spray just before the 15th of November. Kale and clay is readily available, should be readily available from garden centres. Follow the directions of it and don't put on more. More is not better. It's white and you need to be be aware that uh, the spray that goes onto the pavers, it'll make the pavers white. Or if a tree is up against a wall, it'll make the wall white. And uh, the thing is to put a, 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 a ground cover, uh, something on the wall so you spray your tree and not the wall or the ground. Uh, but it is very, very effective, 95% effective in pre preventing wasps from laying eggs. If you use an oil spray, you've got to put on three sprays two weeks apart. So the week before the 30th, you put on your first oil spray and you have uh, every fortnight you need to put on uh, a spray until you've got three sprays on uh, and uh, the oil spray is probably about 70% effective. The kale and clay is 95% effective. And just a few years ago, we hadn't even heard of kale and clay. So it's interesting to know that it's this new product or at least new to home gardeners and uh, it's showing such incredible results. Yeah, and, and South Australia is just leap years ahead of uh, Victoria and Western Australia which also have the citrus gall wasp problem and uh, the manufacturer or the distributor of kale and sort of said oh listen <laughs> they they've, they've still haven't aren't aware of the value of kale and clay and when you if you get it uh, the 
the directions are a little bit strange. Um, I, I don't go along with the directions. I normally say follow the directions, but with uh, the kale and clay, uh, I think it's all wrong if you listen to what I've just said. And two sprays is required just before the, they emerge and another one just before the peak. Uh, congratulations to Sue of Venus Bay and Julie of Glen Osmond who've won our ABC Gardening Australia magazines. Now, Nick from McGill has rung through on Citrus Gall Wasp. Good morning, Nick. Yes, good morning. Look, uh, if I can just uh, be so forward as to make a suggestion about an effective way of getting rid of gall wasps is once you've identified them on the tree, you cut them off uh, and you put them in a bowl of water and stick them in the microwave for about five minutes and uh, that's a really effective way of getting rid of them, mindful of the fact that if you just put them in the green bin, they multiply in the green bin and don't go away, whereas this way you kill them and get rid of it nicely. Yeah, it's a good observation, yes, certainly. If you just chop them off and put the galls on the ground, they'll survive. If you put them in the green bin, I've been reassured that the people that take the bins away, the green bins away, they compost it and heat up the material, and the citrus gall wasps can't survive that, that particular process. Uh, but the problem there, Nick, is that many people have a tall tree and they can't chop off all the was- all the galls. Or they're covered uh, in galls. That, that's right. <laughs> Or the tree is very small, there might be 30 galls on, and by the time you've chopped off 30 galls, you don't have a tree left. And that's why, uh, if you can prune them off, beauty, that gets rid of the whole pop- uh, the population in that little gall. Uh, but uh, uh, you'll find, oh, I, I just think that the concept of uh, just let them emerge but stop them from procreating is a very, very sensible way and a very, very effective way of controlling that particular pest. And uh, Nick from McGill, uh, sorry, with that was thank you to Nick from McGill. Ruth from Macclesfield, uh, you've got uh, a question in relation to rat poisons? Oh, uh, not a question. Um, I heard the other gentleman talking about trying to get rid of rodents. There are brands out there in big garden centres that don't do secondary killing. So you can buy... A- a rat bait for those rat bait stations that John was mentioning and it will not kill owls or magpies or whatever when when they go away to die. So you end up only killing the vermin, not native animals. Right. Yes, thanks, Ruth. There are a number of products out there, and it's very, very confusing as to which chemicals do what. I tried uh, to get a a ratologist on the program, (laughs) and he was very, very effective. But, uh, yeah, and and a lot of the garden centres are not aware of which chemicals do what, and uh, it's a bit of a specialist area. But the main thing, Ruth, is there are chemicals out there which will slowly Mm. kill the rat, and and, and, uh, the rat dies, and if an owl or a dog eats the carcass, then it's not going to get bowled over as well. Thank you, Ruth, and thank you to everyone that called through on Talkback Gardening this morning and sent through so many texts. This one says for O words for October because there's so much going on in gardens. October for gardeners, thank you. And we're reminded by another texter that to men's sheds often sell nesting boxes. So if you're interested, go to your local men's shed. They may have one there for you. Many thanks. And I think it's time for me to say until next week when we talk bees, native bees with Catcher Hogan Dog, good gardening.